I don't wanna go to work I just wanna chill and play All day Looking dead in the face and say I wish I could just be still asleep While you were Welcome to the Jobs Blow Podcast. I'm your host, Brianna Haas, and this is the podcast for dreamers with and without day jobs. As always, I'm so glad to be here sharing more inspiring stories as well as perspectives on surviving life and career before, during, and hopefully after a pandemic. This week's show is called Austin Powers with author Andrea Kane. Andrea, welcome to the show. So great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you because honestly, you're, you're super badass. And one thing I love about this podcast is the women that I meet who are making their way, pursuing their dreams, but also women who are helping other women achieve their dreams. Uh, so thank you for joining us. And before we start, I know you have a lot of titles behind your name, <laughs> so I didn't want to mess it up. So why don't you... We always go through this little this little exercise. What is your current job title, Andrea? My current job title is Director and Professor of Leadership at DePaul University College of Education. Okay. And did how long has that position existed? Because I don't think that existed when I was in college. That's you know, of- I have been at DePaul for 20 years. And so it's been around that long. I definitely feel that we think about leadership very broadly at the College of Education. So I do think while the position's been around, it has a more expansive definition than it did before. So you would say over the course of the 20 years, you have focused more in the gender-specific leadership space as opposed to when you started? I definitely think so. I My background is also as a lawyer. And so I did a lot on gender discrimination. And one of the things I really thought about as director of a leadership program is instead of just redressing gender discrimination, how can we create gender equity in the workplace? And how can we empower women to kind of tap into their badassery. And you are someone who is badass and who empowers women all the time with your podcast. But how can we really think about that in the leadership graduate school space? So you're doing work at the university and you come up with this idea for a book. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, the book is called Kicking Ass in a Corset, Jane Austen's Six Principles for Living and Leading from the Inside Out. And it is the intersection of my career interests, my research interests, and my obsession with Jane Austen. I was at a Jane Austen conference uh, with a friend. This was maybe four or five years ago. And I was talking about how the best leadership advice I've given to my graduate students, I've given to my consultant, consulting clients, all came from these Jane Austen heroines who are uneducated, unmarried, (laughs) fictional characters, but they all had this internal locus of control. And they, you know, again, calling this podcast Austin Powers, they all had a particular superpower so that they could feel freedom, agency, efficacy, and power in an external world, which was completely misogynistic. 
And at the time I was going through a divorce and I felt like this was not just about leadership in career, it was also about leadership in one's personal life. And I was tapping into all six of these superpowers. And then I started to share it with my students, with my clients. I would talk about it at conferences and it just kind of took off from there. So I really didn't read Jane. I didn't read any Jane Austen. In fact, I only watched, I think, two movies. <laughs> and I hate Gwyneth Paltrow. So you know, she always comes up on this podcast because I just, That was not one of my favorite Jane Austen adaptations, by the way. Colin Firth, Mr. Darcy is the one you should see. Okay. Well, and I understand there's a new version of Emma. And yes. it's that young lady from the Queen's show. Gambit, right. Yeah. She's so great. That, it's our, I already like it better. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, I, I really, I think it's so interesting that you're talking about characters from her books because in the little bit I remember, it felt very much like, oh, some they want to get married and fall in love. That's what I remember. But again, I've only seen two and I saw them each once and we're going back 20 years. So when I first read about you, I was kind of like, well, that's really interesting because those are not characters that I would have thought as heroine, you know, like somebody that I should look up to or emulate. You know, it's that's such a great question. And you, you don't need Jane Austen to read the book, but it just shows what a disservice movies and TV adaptations can do. Because while Jane Austen's time was all about how marriageable you were, did you have a dowry, who your father was, if you weren't married, you're, you were going to be considered a nobody. Jane Austen's characters say F you to that. Elizabeth Bennet who has no dowry, who has very few prospects, except for her own wit and charm, is proposed to by Mr. Darcy, who's the wealthiest man in Derbyshire, is kind of an uber eligible bachelor. And she says no to him because he insults her. He undermines uh, her sister. He insults her family. And even though society doesn't value her, she values herself so much that she has the freedom to say no. And really, Jane Austen heroines say no all over the place. They really are almost married to themselves. Now, in the end, it's fiction. They end up with the guy. But really, it's the guy who's chastened, who kind of comes back to them but they're very internally referenced. They're full unto themselves without the man, even though the, that society was all about marriage. Right. So in reading her work, it's um, about women who are able to say no to marriage. Right, right. But because of the times, they end up having to acquiesce. <laughs> well, they, and I think in some ways, they don't have to acquiesce. I think... It, when the marriage happens at the end, it's because they really want it. They're full before the marriage. And mm -hmm. even when Elizabeth Bennett, who ends up with Mr. Darcy, who's the richest guy in England, she doesn't change. She is still very much herself. She teases him. She laughs at him. She is who she is, independent of her marriage. And that's what I think, you know, so many women define themselves by the people they work with, by their spouses and their families, by their children. 
And for me, the Jane Austen heroines define themselves unto themselves, not by their relation or service to other people. You know, and it's funny because I was talking to someone about this the other day, and I think it was actually my daughter and her friend in their preteens. And I said, you know, when I was in my 20s, I was not, I've never been that person that was like, I have to get married. I have to get married. That's, you know, that's my goal. That's where my happiness will be. I was more of the mindset of, I would like to get married and have a, you know, a child, but it's going to have to be the way my life plays out. Right. And I feel like you remove expectations that maybe you grew up with around what marriage is supposed to be. I also came from divorce. So I, my expectations were low. So (laughs) I feel like, you know, there is something to the fact that society puts all these ideas and pressures and you have to remove them and kind of see clearly to really find happiness and, and be content. And I think the key is being content, right? That is such a great point. I think, and I think about I'm married again, and I think about my first marriage and having nothing to do with my first husband, who's the, a great father to my kids, but it was very much, you go to graduate school, you get married, you have to check all these boxes. And there was lots of conditioning in both our families to do that rather than thinking that, you know, we're fine as we are. And if we meet someone and we connect and want to do it, I I think that's so true. And I think it's so important to raise our daughters to know that you are not, um, you know, I love Jerry Maguire, but I think that line, you complete me, does such a disservice um, to all kids and especially women who, and I think I'm older than you, but at 55, I, 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 you know, I just feel like I was very much conditioned. You are not going to be full, complete and happy unless you find someone. And Jane Austen is such a counter to that. And I think it's such an important, it's so important um, to empower our kids that you're full, you're complete onto yourselves. And if you meet someone, great but you don't need to kind of cleave on to someone in order to feel fulfilled and happy. Right. And I I feel like that applies to jobs too. Oh, so true. Caught up in the money-making aspect of it and not, you know, what's going to truly make them happy. Before we go on though, I usually do an inspirational quote. And so I pulled the Jane Austen quote that I thought made sense for this conversation. And it is, it isn't what we say or think that defines us, but what we do. Oh, and that's I thought, a great quote. Yeah, I thought that was a, a really great quote for this conversation. And it leads into my next question, um, because a principle of your approach is that women should reject universal truths that don't reflect their own values and instead rely on their own moral compass. So is it something that you find that you think women find difficult to do more so than men? I definitely think I, you know, I have this whole process in the book I call de-universalizing our truths. I think whether it's to be obedient, to be likable, to be a team player, to um, mouth shut, to keep your mouth shut, to be the one who takes, you know, takes the minutes, to be the one who doesn't kind of claim their work or doesn't shake things up or doesn't, you know, isn't too onery or 
I, I feel like as women, we are conditioned with all these universal truths that aren't our own. And we have to kind of be like Maria Kondo and go through our minds and our psyches and find out where they came from. And if they're not ours, we have to give them back. You know, one of the compliments in a Jane Austen book is uh, one of the characters, Elizabeth Bennett, is described as an obstinate, headstrong girl. And if you talk to any Jane Austen fan, that is a compliment. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes, you know, as girls, we are raised to be compliant and nice and likable. And I think it's just so important to de-universalize those truths that aren't our own and try and figure out who we are, what do we believe in, and how do we want to act um, in accordance with, you know, again, that, you know, moral compass and moral center. Well, it's funny. You reminded me of a moment from my childhood where a boy I had a crush on, I think I was in seventh grade, called me a smart ass. And I looked at him and I said, I'd rather be a smart ass than a dumb ass. <laughs> I remember being so proud of myself in that moment. And I, I attribute the me saying that to the fact that I grew up with all boys. Right. And why, why would I not give it back to him? You know, uh, but I, I the whole moral compass thing is something that I think about a lot because in the course of my career, I have had things happen and I am always shocked by other people's like lack of intervention or willingness to not intervene. And that's not who I am. In fact, one of my bosses nicknamed me Norma Ray for that very reason. I always say when I, you know, get down about certain things that at the end of the day, I can still look at myself in the mirror. I have no regrets. I live my life honestly and truthfully. And, you know, I think a lot of women here in their career, well, I was treated that way. So that's, and the minute I heard that, the first thing I thought of is, well, I'm going to stop that. I'm not going to treat people that way. So then hopefully the next person doesn't get treated that way. So I just, I think that is one of the sad truths about women in uh, their industries or in their careers, because they're so desperate to be heard and seen. And oftentimes in an effort to achieve those things, they don't treat other women well. That is so true. And I need to have you come be an adjunct for gender discrimination course because you have all the right instincts that I think are kind of rare. I think it's so true. I think there are a lot of, um, when you look at gender discrimination, obviously it's, you know, oftentimes the male boss or people at work who are men who are discriminating, but there are a lot of women who are complicit. Mm -hmm. And for them, it's like hazing. I went through this hazing, so you need to go through this hazing too. Or it becomes so normalized in the culture, people will say, well, this is just the way this company is, or this is just the way this person is. Why are you so sensitive? Get a thicker skin. Get a thicker skin. Personally. Don't be a troublemaker. And you see that all the time. And Sometimes because people are in the culture and maybe it's the way they've been brought up, 
they don't realize how wrong it is till they leave and are in a different paradigm or till someone comes and points it out to them. But to be the Norma Ray and get up on the chair and say, you know what, the emperor has no clothes. We got to change things, takes so much courage. Oftentimes, though, it's one or two people who do that. And then it, you know, again, there's that quote, I think it's Susan Sontag, courage is as contagious as fear. And, um, you know, we need people like you in the workplace. And we also need women to look out for one another. I think the other thing that can happen in some dynamics um, where you have misogyny and discrimination, um, either where it's really bad or it's at the beginning stages, is you could have women who are pitted against each other. And so it's woman against woman. And, you know, it's, it's so important that we sort of stand up for our sisters and stand up for what's right. So if I were to read this book, tell me some things you would like me to take away. What sort of learnings that I, you know, could take away and into the workplace? Definitely. I, you know, I think the thing about Jane Austen and, and in it, I bring in the leadership literature and I bring in modern examples. I also bring in a lot of positive psychology, which I think is very empowering for people in the workplace. But it's all about how we tap into our internal sense of agency, power and equanimity, no matter what's going on around us, no matter what corset we're experiencing metaphorically on how we're being squeezed. So, you know, and each heroine is a different principle about how to do that. And I operationalize them. So my Elizabeth Bennett principle, and you don't need to know Elizabeth Bennett, it's all about knowing your internal and inherent value, no matter how the environment is devaluing you. And remembering that, so that no matter what people say or do, you have a kind of personal freedom because you know your own worthiness. You're not plugging into the outside work world for your worthiness. Eleanor Dashwood from Sense and Sensibility, Emma Thompson, that was a great adaptation, by the way, is all about resiliency and responding to external tumult and change with a kind of internal calm, acceptance, and like a problem solving um, way rather than as a victim. Mm -hmm. And, and I really feel like she, Jane Austen through Eleanor Dashwood breaks down the components of resiliency and gosh, we need that now more than ever. Right. Anne Elliott, who's from the novel persuasion is um, for me, persuasion is all about entitlement and privilege versus hard work and merit. Women have no problem doing the hard work. What we have a problem with is claiming it and owning it. Mm -hmm. You know, oftentimes we give it away and men who can be entitled and privileged can take credit. So that chapter is all about how to claim our hard work and call out entitlement and privilege. Um, Fanny Price, we were sort of talking about, is about faithfully following your internal moral compass. Fanny, in some ways, is the least powerful in, in I think, all of the Austin books. But she's the one who confronts her powerful uncle about his involvement in the slave trade. 
she stands up. She is this, you know, moral compass. Uh, she's a rock. She's as firm in her principles. That's the way she's described. And it's very hard to do that when you face external pressure and coercion. But gosh, we need that now more than ever when the Norma Rays. Um, and again, one Norma Ray can inspire five, can inspire 50. Um, so that's what that chapter about. Catherine Moreland is all about dreaming, wonder, curiosity, passion, and hope. That's so important for renewal and being a busy working mother. I often found that I was the last person on the list, but then I completely burnt out. And it's all about how to put in sacred self-care into our daily or weekly lives, which we need. Also, too, when we do that, we can be creative. We get our best ideas. I get my best ideas when I'm walking in the woods with my dog or I'm taking a bath or I'm doing yoga. And that's what that one's about. Emma Woodhouse is about kind of growth mindset. And knowing that we are never going to be at this place that we imagine when we will be on top of everything and we'll know everything and we'll, we're finished. We're constantly growing and evolving and we need the you know humility and the growth mindset to be open to that, that we never get it all done. And that's okay. We are worthy and we are enough. And it's all about you know learning and trying and striving and failing and kind of getting back on the horse. And these books are what, 200 years? How old? Yes, they are over 200 years old. And there are kind of crazy obsessed Janeite people like me who read them and reread them and find layers of relevance and meaning. And Jane Austen, I mean, she was a feminist. She read Mary Wollstonecraft. She was really interested in women and power and self-actualization, even in a world that viewed women as property. Yeah. And I have to say, when I think about the world she lived in, I get claustrophobic. Like think about living at, in that time. I mean, I'm getting claustrophobic in <laughs> with Governor Abbott and yeah. all the madness that's got, that is going on. I can't even imagine 200 years ago. Oh gosh. I, you know, I'm, I'm doing a project right now. I, I talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but I'm looking at uh, Sonia Sotomayor, Justice Sonia Sotomayor's dissent in the recent, you know, reproductive freedom case with Texas. And it's so interesting because I'm really thinking about what Jane Austen would say. And she would be horrified. And I'm talking about the patriarchy in society, but also the patriarchy we've all kind of internalized. Oh, yeah. And I, I mean, I still recognize th different things. You know, I mean, the whole virginity thing. Yeah. You know, all of those things are so ingrained. And I, you know, honestly, it it's certainly, there was a lot of guilt associated with it growing up. And you know, you're a slut, you're a tease, you, you, you know, boys don't go through that. Totally. Even words are, you know, the fact that, and again, you know, vagina can't, couldn't be said on television, but penis could be said on television. But they would oh. show you a vagina, but right. not Exactly. <laughs> you know, women couldn't like breastfeed in public, but you could go to Hooters. 
um, the objectification of female body and even sex for men, thinking about men's pleasure and not women's pleasure. It's all over the place. And I think it's so um, it's so interesting because I do think even in this crazy Regency England, which is all about that, Jane Austen kind of turns it on its head. And um, again, she was unmarried. She didn't have children. She died at 41. She had wealthy brothers. She was not wealthy. She was poor. She, again, resented the fact that she couldn't own property. She couldn't get an education. But she provides, I think, some very interesting commentary about how we can, um, you know, take down the patriarchy. As we take down the patriarchy in the world, we can take down the patriarchy in our minds that we've inculcated. Well, I hope that there's some other place that Jane Austen exists and she knows the impact that she <laughs> had, because now I'm really sad uh, that her story ended the way it did. Ugh. Yeah, yeah you, you know, she had a she had a tough life, but I think in some ways, kind of like her heroines, she was able to feel, you know, she I think knew she was smart and a good writer. And she was able to look at these societies and satirize and criticize them from this distance. So I think she was full and complete. She had a wonderful relationship with her sister, Cassandra. And, you know, she was witty and smart and was able to kind of also enjoy her life on her terms too. Oh, okay. Well, that makes me feel better. <laughs> so since you teach the, this, these leadership courses, I assume you have men and women in these courses? Yes, I have men and women, which I think is really important. Oh, I agree. I'm just curious to know how, when you're talking about women in the workplace and men and how that all comes together do your do you find your male students get it angry or feel like you're picking on them or do you feel like this is a generation that has a better understanding so they're more aware and more willing to acknowledge it well you know it's very interesting i definitely think there's a mix i feel that um, the response sometimes is this defensive, reflective, oh, maybe some men do that, but I never do that. And then I will have people reflect, and, and most of my students are working in organizations and going to school at night. So it's a wonderful laboratory for them to take what we're learning in the classroom and observe in their real organizations during the day. I'll say, okay. Let's look at claiming hard work. You know, keep track of your meetings. How often are you complimenting people? Who are you complimenting? Who's claiming their hard work and who's not claiming their hard work? When you're allocating job assignments, how are you allocating those job assignments? I mean, so this is in Mika Brzezinski from Morning Joe, and she has the Know Your Value Network, and she wrote a book called Know Your Value. She has this great quote uh, from Elizabeth Warren, who talked about how when she was at University of Texas Law School, she and a lot of her female colleagues 
all had the crappiest teaching assignments. It could be eight in the morning on a Thursday or Friday night, Friday afternoon at 4 p.m. And Elizabeth Warren, who's so confident and so strong, she was actually a professor of mine at University of Pennsylvania Law School. Oh, wow. She, you know, was like, I'm just so lucky to be here. I'm so grateful for this job. The women always willing to roll up their sleeves to do the tough stuff. The men not stepping up. So I will ask my male students who are in leadership positions to look at job assignments. There are so many who come back to me and say, oh my gosh, the women are doing most of the work and they're doing the hardest work. And it's on them. And it's also inculcated into the women. I mean, I teach this stuff. I write this stuff. And just last week, we have a committee at DePaul and we need a chair. And there are a couple men and me. And reflexively, I want to reply all and say, I'll be chair, but I always do that. Right, right. And the men are just ghosts. They're just not even responding. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm on a PTA for my daughter's school. There is not one man on the PTA. Wow. And I work. It's not like I'm a stay-at-home mom and, you know, I'm just kicking around. So sure, I'll take on the PTA co-president job. See, it's so interesting. I mean, that really is a pattern. So I think when people, even if it's not their intention to do that, oftentimes we go to this default pattern. And that's why it's so important that we like examine our own data. And, you know, again, not to like judge ourselves, but just to be aware and then try and change and have some intentional strategies for creating more equity. Okay. And so I know in your book there, you have some exercises that you recommend. And one of them is explore the other side of your business card. What does that mean? Well, this is all about how, as women, we are so used to defining ourselves by what we do for other people. This could be for our family, which is really important, for our friends, for our community, and even how we're relational in the workplace. So I do this exercise with groups I lead and courses I teach and and clients where I say, okay, what are three words that describe you, three attributes you have? that have nothing to do with your service to other people, how other people think about you, that are just about you. And oftentimes it takes them a while to kind of come up with those. And I think it's it's tapping into that inherent value that has nothing to do with anyone else or how anyone else views us. It's us really just viewing ourselves for ourselves that's really important and gives us that strong core. Well, and women are so ingrained in insecurities because of everything that is put out there and the way we should look and the way we should act. And yeah. So I think when you ask questions like that, women tense up and, I, you know, I, I, I can't say this about myself because then I'll sound this way and... You know, I, I, I don't really think I'm that, so I'm not going to say, you know, so I just feel like we put ourselves through so, you know, through such filters on what we think we should be and who we are. And I just think that's probably a big piece of it. 
I think it's so true. And I think, and I, again, my daughter's 25 and I think as a mom, there are a lot of things I did right. But one of the areas I really regret, I think about her, you know, starting school and maybe it was second or third grade. Somebody wanted, you know, a play date with her. And so I started to schedule it. And she said to me, but wait a second, I don't like that girl. And I turned to her reflexively and I said, you can't not like someone, you know, and it was, again, I, you know, I think it's also important to be inclusive, but this idea that she didn't have agency to decide her own feelings and that I was so worried that I would look bad to the mom and that she would look, you know, it was all about how things were viewed. And I remember thinking, how could I be this Jane Austen lover and program my daughter that she had to say yes, whoever asked. And have you ever asked your daughter if she remembers that moment? She totally remembers it. And she reminds me, (laughs) she reminds me, she has a list, right? She has (laughs) that list. But she also reminds me of a moment where we were walking down the hall in school and I don't know, there was a former teacher And, you know, my daughter was not in a good mood. And I just said to her, you know, you should really smile and say hi. Oh, I know. I know. And, you know, it makes me cringe. I hear the nails on the chalkboard as I recall it. But it's part of how I was conditioned. And I don't I don't think I did that all the time. But when I think about obstinate, headstrong girl as a compliment in Austin, I've been spending my whole life detoxing the good girl conditioning and also owning up to my daughter, the good girl conditioning that I did for her on those occasions, which wasn't all the time. Well, and I think we have to be, I think there's a difference in being a good person, but being a good girl is a different thing, right? Because you want to be a good person. You want to, you want to be kind and thoughtful and all those things. But uh, the good girl is the girl that's being told you can't wear spaghetti straps because of this. And you can't show your midriff because of this. And so I, there is definitely a difference. That is, you know, you are so great with this marketing, like with the Austin Powers. I think there's a difference between being a good person mm-hmm. and being the performative good girl. Yep. Where people want to put, you know, put her in the corner. Um, what's the dirty dancing character? No one puts baby in the corner. Right. But I think it's that putting ourselves in the corner and being these amazing supporting kind of avatars for everyone else, instead of being a three-dimensional human being. We're just hosts. Don't you know? (laughs) We're just hosts. We're not real people. Oh gosh, I talk about the West World part of my life, which is now West Exactly. I, I mean it's okay. So to end on a fun note, I came up with a game and it's called Lace Em Up, aka in a corset. And I'm gonna name some awful men and I want you to tell me how you would Austin power them. <laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh. Better person. Okay. That's wonderful. The first one is Jeff Bezos with his phallic shaped uh, rocket ship. (laughs) I think he needs some Emma Woodhouse humility. 
All right. That was easy. Okay. How about Mark? I created Facebook because I'm a douchebag and a girl didn't like me Zuckerberg. (laughs) Um, Gosh, I think he needs a couple Austin powers on him. I think that, you know, first thing is he needs to understand the monster of his creation so for him i just think fanny price you know he needs to you know hang out with those qanon people for a while <laughs> the creation his own yeah creation. okay how about another penis rocket elon musk <laughs> i think elon musk you know again with entitlement and privilege i think i think I think the hard work and the merit, I think he needs to see what it's like, I don't know, maybe to be in a sort of socialist community like a kibbutz in Israel or something like that, where you're, you know, working the land and you're kind of getting its equal value for all people. Okay. So not an Austin character? Well, I think that is, I I think that's Anne Elliott. Okay. Okay. Um, Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell. Um, Mitch McConnell. Oh, Mitch, Mitch, Mitch. Mitch, I believe Elizabeth Bennett would kind of chop his head off and maybe something else, if you know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) You know, with all the reproductive um, rights and freedom in Texas, I think there needs to be equal regulation on men and, and Mitch would be at the head of the line. Yeah, I, I when I first heard about this whole thing in Texas, my first instinct was we just completely skipped over the part where we hold men accountable that don't pay child support for children who are actually living or take any responsibility for children once it, born. it is so true. I mean, there's there's so much um, data that when it comes to schools, when it comes to child health care, Texas doesn't care. I mean, Texas is at the bottom of, you know, all the states. Well, I so, think those red states are. Yeah. 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 OK, well, we could talk all day about that subject. <laughs> um, so, again, the name of your book Kicking Ass in a Corset. The name of my book is Kicking Ass in a Corset, Jane Austen, Six Principles for Living and Leading from the Inside Out. And where can we buy this book? It's available everywhere. It's available at all the big sellers. It's also available at so many independent bookstores. Um, it's paperback, um, ebook. It's also audiobook, Audible and Apple Books. Amazon, um, Jeff Bezos, but it's also available available everywhere. It's at a lot of places. And and you could go to my website, andreakane.com and it's K-A-Y-N-E. Okay. And how about, do you have any social channels? I do. I have Instagram. I have Facebook. I have LinkedIn. I have Twitter. I have, um, I have a lot of, a lot of great stuff going on. I love your, your name. I could really butcher Andrea Kane. Like I could really <laughs> do a job on that name. Andrea Kahn. <laughs> a lot of people do. All right. Well, thank you so much 
for coming to the Jabs Blow podcast. Oh, it's, it's so wonderful fun. to be here. And you are really so badass and so inspiring. And even though you haven't read Jane Austen, you completely <laughs> embody her. Well, thank you. And honestly, this might be a new book collection I get my daughter because I did give her Judy Bloom. <laughs> I love her. Judy Bloom. She was more my speed growing up. <laughs> um, so um, maybe she and I can read some Jane Austen together. Oh, that would be once a great mother-daughter book club for obstinate, headstrong girls in all the best ways. Yes, and I am raising one, hopefully, so. Yay, I'm sure you are. All right, well, this is the Jobs Blow Podcast. We're at jobsblowpodcast.com, on Instagram and Facebook at Jobs Blow Podcast. I'm Brianna Haas on Instagram at Brihaas1. Thank you again for joining us. If you're listening, thank you, and please subscribe and review.